I'm glad to be back with you, and like all of you, I am resenting daylight savings. I don't know why we loan the government that hour, or why we let them loan it to us. They always take it back. Um, we are going to pick up tonight in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 12. As you may recall, Deuteronomy is probably best understood as Moses' parting sermon or possibly sermon series. And um, as any good preacher knows, a sermon is about one thing. It has one unified message. And so Deuteronomy also, as a good sermon, has primarily one point and that's to present anew, afresh, in front of the people of Israel, the choice to commit to, to fulfill uh, the covenant, to follow God, uh, as he'll sum it up in the final chapters, to choose life or to forsake the God who had delivered them, uh, to deny his covenant and choose death. Where we are in chapter 12 begins the largest section of the book. The section will carry us all the way through chapter 26, and it is essentially a um, pastoral review of the laws of the covenant. There's a good deal in common between the material we find in the book of Exodus that we call the law, and the material we find in the book of Leviticus that we also call the law, and these chapters, chapter 12 through 26. But if you pay attention, you'll notice not only are they not verbatim repeated, but they're also filtered through the lens of Paul's pastoral heart in this particular sermon's message. He selects specifically the laws uh, that move them towards this idea of choice. And so we'll find lots of sinew between the legal code, giving reasons and exhortations. Uh, we will also find the second thing that he does in this portion is he takes the law that was given to them as a wandering people in the wilderness and updates it as they are just about to become a settled people in the promised land. And so we'll see the, um, the sacrifice and killing of food laws get an update because now they're no longer going to be living in close quarters around the tabernacle but spread broadly over the nation of Israel. But primarily those are the two things that Paul does, uh, excuse me, that Moses does here. Um, the other thing that's worth mentioning is that many, many scholars, commentators, and Bible teachers have tried to figure out how Paul... Oh, it's going to be a lot of that tonight. Uh, I might as well tell you the reason. I have this theory right now that Paul's letter to the Romans is Paul's Deuteronomy. And I haven't had time to explore it yet, but it's just sitting there. So I'm going to be having those Freudian slips all night. Um, Moses, uh, commentators, teachers, interpreters, for a long time have tried to figure out what exactly is the organization for these chapters, chapters 12 through 26. One of the most compelling suggestions... Uh, is that he is actually 
exegeting or expositing or preaching his way through the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words that were re-given for us again in his introduction. As we'll see tonight, the best evidence for that suggestion is right here, that he starts in the same place the Decalogue starts with what we owe before God. But it does get a little bit iffy. you, You end up having to cut corners to maintain that structure. Um, It is worth mentioning for us tonight, though, that chapters 12, 13, and 14, Lord willing, we'll cover all three tonight, do seem to focus primarily on the first two commands, to uh, not worship any other god nor build any idols, uh, no graven images. And so the focus tonight all has to do with worship. As I mentioned, Moses here is going to update some of the laws, and so we're going to transition from thinking about uh, the tabernacle being in close proximity to Israel versus when the nation spreads out and each tribe has its inheritance, and then what is worship and sacrifice going to look like? And so he says here in verse 1, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Okay. So notice, even there, as he says, these are the rules and statutes, he sets it in the setting of this big choice they're about to make, to enter into the land and follow the God who is giving them this land all the days of their life. And he says in verse 2, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down their carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Now there's been a lot of talk about uh, Israel's commitment to wipe out any threat within the land of Canaan Notice here that the focus has to do with the places of worship for the Canaanites and their implements of worship, okay? And so there's a focus here on finding the places where the Canaanites currently worship, which includes the high mountains and hills uh, and under every green tree in the groves, uh, and then all sorts of different Uh, worship implements, both idols and otherwise. And so we see pillars and the ashram here. Uh, We see carved images that need to be destroyed. All of this needs to be rooted out. It's worth pointing out here that God doesn't just take these things and turn them into places of worshiping the right God. Right? He doesn't take the emblems and the elements of these other religions or even the places that the Canaanites worshipped and leave them open for business under new management. Right? He wants them all completely wiped out and destroyed. And it's worth mentioning here that emphasis that it's not just ideological or theological uh, or non-physical, the worship of God, They can't just go, oh, well, we can just leave them there. We just won't use them. 
They can't go, oh, we'll leave them there, but now we'll worship the true and living God. No, he knows us better than that, and so he recognizes uh, that if these things are left standing, so will their influence. In fact, notice that his concern is pointed in verse 3. It says, dash into pieces their pillars, burn their ashram with fire, chop down their carved images, and notice, destroy their name out of that place. And it's worth pointing out there that both the word place and the word name there are in the plural. It'd be better translated as destroy their names, all of the gods, out of these places, all of these places on the high hills and in the grooves um, that were being used for worship. But the concern is the name or the authority or even the possibility of the gods themselves. Now, we come from a culture that has a tendency uh, to wrongly or create a false dichotomy between the physical and the spiritual. This is, this is actually a habit that flows through human history. And so, for example, in the days of Paul the Apostle, he writes to the Corinthian church, and there are some in the church going, we know that food is just food. And that gods aren't really gods at all. And any idols that represent them or temples that represent them are just falsehoods. And Paul goes, well, that's really not the best way to see it. He sees these physical places and these physical objects and these interacted rituals as having spiritual significance. And one of the reasons Paul is concerned with the church in Corinth is just like Moses is concerned here that we... Uh, leave ourselves open to temptation when we don't deal uh, holistically with the things in front of us. Now, another reason I would say it's worth paying attention to what Moses says here is this is exactly what Israel does not do. And when they begin to return into rebellion and begin to worship the other gods, guess where they do it? in the high places and the groves. Guess what they use to worship these gods? The ashram and the poles and the carved images. Okay, And so these warnings are not unnecessary. In fact, they go unheeded. But the emphasis here is on the names. Now notice the contrast here. So you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way in the way that the Canaanites did. But, verse 5, you shall seek the place, singular, that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name, singular, and make it his habitation. So the contrast here is between the places of the gods and the place God, singular, will choose. Do you see that? Uh, In terms of rhetoric, in terms of how Moses is trying to get his point across, he's emphasizing that contrast here between the multitude in the many places and the one true in the one place that he will choose. But notice then, there again, the emphasis on his name. When the Bible talks about the name of God, it's not merely talking about his name tag. It's not talking about uh, how to get God's attention so he turns around when you call him. The idea of name always involves authority and ownership. And so the place uh, where his name will be 
Uh, God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name on this place. This habitation is the place that belongs to him. Now, this emphasis on name and this emphasis on place continues in the Bible. We're reading forward in the story, but ultimately and finally, this place will be the city of Jerusalem, where David will desire to build the temple, replacing the temporary tabernacle, and uh, God graciously will allow his son Solomon to do it in his place, and this becomes the city of God, Mount Zion, the place where the name of God dwells. And so it's interesting here when we try and speed the story forward and we come to our own lives as Christians. Because we have to go, okay, so if there's this emphasis on proper worship in the proper place, the one God chooses and places his name, then what does that mean for us who worship here in Seattle or there in Texas or over there in Papua New Guinea or anywhere else, okay? How do these things come forward? And Uh, To do so, we need to kind of follow the thread through the prophets and then into the New Testament. So, for example, notice the emphasis in Isaiah chapter 45. For context, Isaiah is writing to a people in a time uh, where Israel is now back out of the land again, where they have been removed because of these high places and the adulterous and idolatrous worship of other gods. And he speaks here and he talks about this coming king, Cyrus, who will restore Israel to the land of Israel. And then we find, again, this emphasis on the name. And so notice in verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Okay, and so we see here this emphasis again on God and the worship of God, not merely for the people of Israel, but for all nations. In fact, notice how he continues here in verse 24. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So God speaks of this time where his name and his salvation will be for all the nations. Now the tail end of verse 23 there may sound familiar to you. Let me read it again. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Or literally, uh, in the Septuagint, every tongue shall confess. Okay? Now, Paul takes this in Philippians. And so, remember, Paul is writing this after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Paul has left Jerusalem behind. This is before the destruction of Jerusalem, but only a few decades before Jerusalem will be wiped out. The temple of Jesus and Paul's day will be destroyed. He's speaking to the Philippians, and he also speaks of this idea of a name. Okay? And so here he's speaking of Jesus. This is in Philippians chapter 2. And he talks here about the incarnation of Jesus, of the God who's become flesh, of him who did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to, but gave it up and made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of man, and then uh, taking it all the way to the death of the cross. And then I want to pick up in chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him, Jesus is who we're talking about, the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see this emphasis in Deuteronomy. There is one name and there is one place. There's one name to worship God, the place where his name will be. Isaiah takes this same thing in the restoration of the land and says, this will be the one name for all the nations that every mouth will profess to be God. And Paul, without batting an eye, takes it and applies it now to Jesus. There are those often who argue that the New Testament documents themselves, especially the early ones, do not see Jesus as divine. That is ridiculous. It is impossible when you pay attention not just to how the New Testament authors describe and speak of Jesus, but specifically how they apply Old Testament scriptures to Jesus. Do you remember the context of Isaiah 45? He goes on a, little, a few verses later and he says, I will not share my glory with another. I am the one, the only, the one true God. Everyone will confess me. And Paul, once again, without batting an eye, says here, and the name of that one true God is Jesus. But we still have the issue of place. Here in Deuteronomy, God says, there will come a time where I will put my name where uh, I am to be worshipped, and from there I am to be worshipped, and from there alone. And so notice, once again, uh, in verse 6, And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. Do you know what that list is? It's effectively the broad representation of Israel's worship. Whether their gifts are freewill or because they made a vow, whether they're tied to the festivals uh, or they are part of their tithes, all of that was to happen at the place where God would place his name, and only that place in the singular. 
Verse 7, there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Now, we may be spoiling the story at this point. These details will come out eventually, but the implication of what Moses says here is that where you live in Israel will require pilgrimage to this place, whatever place it will be, for their worship. And that worship will not just be for the high holidays of Israel, but for the giving of or the fulfilling of a vow, but for their annual giving of the tithes, which we'll return to. All of their worship was to be brought to this place. He continues here in verse 8. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone is uh, doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. And so, with a semi-critique, he says, it's not going to be as it is today. And the positive version of that would be to say, where the tabernacle is nearby. But Moses knows the people of Israel, so he says something that's a little bit more severe. He doesn't say where you don't have any trouble traveling. He doesn't say where his name is over the whole camp because we're all together. He says where you all do basically whatever you want. This is word for word the same criticism that we find repeated by the author of the book of Judges. In those days in Israel, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Okay? So notice here the contrast is not just with the way the Canaanites worshipped, but also the way that we would prefer to worship. Effectively, the Bible maintains that God determines the proper way to worship him as the recipient of that worship. And so it's not necessarily up to us what it should look like. I know as modern Americans, preference bleeds into every aspect of our life, and so it often bleeds into our worship. We prefer particular styles or particular settings. We prefer particular um, cultural aspects. And we choose, we shop around for the worship experiences that are the most satisfying to us. It is hard to read this passage of Deuteronomy here in chapter 12 and not see that that's probably wrong-headed. That if worship is going to be right, then it's going to be worship that is shaped and determined by the God we are worshiping. Not our own preference, not our own heart, not the example of other religions. Um, uh, But instead here, he's going to lay out a way and a means. Now this is particularly important for Israel because as we've seen, especially in Leviticus, God directly designs their worship, not just because of the God that he is, but because of the salvation he will accomplish. God demands sacrifice because the wages of sin is death and because he really is going to provide a sacrifice. God requires a temple as the place where his presence dwells because he really is going to become a man and dwell in the midst of his people. In fact, notice what it says in verse 10. But when you go over to the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all the enemies around so that you live in safety, then go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your contributions that you present, all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Okay, so here there's an emphasis on place. 
but it's different today. We, unlike other religions, take Islam, for example, don't see pilgrimage as a necessity. Maybe some of you have been to Israel and therefore Jerusalem, like I have, but I didn't go there to fulfill my worship to God, nor is it required for us to do so. It is this tension, by the way, coming directly out of this book, that leads to a conversation we find in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 4, Jesus is having a conversation with a woman in the city of Samaria. She's a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans only regarded the books of Moses as Scripture. And so they read this, and there's no reference of Jerusalem. And so for them, the place of God's name, the place of God's worship, is Gerizim. And Gerizim may not be on your biblical radar, but it was on theirs specifically because of its role in the lives of the patriarchs. Okay, it was a place where the patriarchs worshipped. And so, after realizing that Jesus is at very least a prophet, she asks him this question. She says, your people, your people worship the Lord at Jerusalem, but my people worship at Mount Gerizim. Which is it? And Jesus gives an interesting spot, response, especially in the light of Deuteronomy. He says, I tell you the truth that there is coming a day when people will neither worship here nor there, but those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth, for God is spirit and he is true. And the purpose that that serves in the Gospel of John is just to pique our curiosity. We don't necessarily know at that point what Jesus means. In fact, we get closer if we add it to another statement that Jesus makes just a few chapters earlier in a different setting. This is taking place in John chapter 2, and it's on an occasion where Jesus and the disciples are walking through Jerusalem and near the temple. Okay? Now, if you're paying attention to all the time slots we've hit tonight, all the pieces of the timeline, this is not... Uh, this is not the tabernacle that Israel is familiar with. This is not the temple that David builds in Jerusalem. This is the rebuilt temple in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah that's then built up by King Herod and was relatively glorious after 40 years worth of remodel in the days of Jesus. So John's gospel tells us that they were just kind of dumbfounded. The disciples going, man, look at the beauty of this place. And Jesus begins to talk, and he says, I tell you the truth, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And John throws us a bone, and he says, but he was speaking of his body. In fact, John's prequel, or sorry, his um, introduction in John chapter 1 makes an interesting point about Jesus as well, tying it not there to the temple, but to the tabernacle, saying that the word became flesh and then he uses a borrowed Hebrew word transliterated in Greek and basically says in our language, and tabernacled among us. Okay. And so when we put these together, what we find, like we saw with the name of Jesus, is that things are different for us because the place where we worship God is Jesus. The temple of God is Jesus. In fact, the New Testament pushes that even further and says, because Jesus now resides in us through his spirit, we have become the temple of the living God. Now, this is a really important point for us to understand. This is not a holy place. 
except in the fact that it is filled with a holy people. There's nothing inherently sacred or spiritual about this building. In fact, we often refer to this building as the church, but that's a relatively new new way of conveying what the word church means. How it's used in the New Testament, it always speaks of a people. The church who is in Philippi, the church who is in Corinth, the church of Christ, that is, his body. That's the way that the language is used. And so what we see here is not that God has eradicated these things, but that they've been in a greater way fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But notice that in doing so, it doesn't change the emphasis. Okay? What we read here is, one, uh, is an emphasis of exclusivity, of a single way in contrast with other wrong ways. Okay? Jesus makes the same claim for himself. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the place where his name dwells. I am the place uh, that he has chosen. I am the temple where you will meet with God. In fact, the author of Acts, in one of the sermons he records, tells us this, that all must come salvation through Jesus Christ because there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And so the emphasis we find here in Deuteronomy of exclusivity is maintained in the New Testament by Jesus himself and by his apostles, even though the story has moved forward from the shadow of the tabernacle and the temple to the substance in Jesus Christ. Now notice verse 12. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and the Levites with you in your town since he has no portion or inheritance with you. So when they come to Jerusalem, when they come to gather, it is a broad and inclusive invitation so that they're not to leave those who are in their employ at home but bring them to benefit from this sacrificial feast, the fellowship offering, before the Lord in Jerusalem. It's also to include the Levites. And we'll find that the Levites, by the end of tonight, are lumped with another category, also included here, which are the poor and the foreigner. And so it's an interesting thing here, and it's one the Bible constantly maintains, which is an exclusivity and an inclusivity. In fact, one of the things that's interesting about this place by which God will name, the verbiage that's used to it is not, and you will go to the place that God will set out, it's, and you will come to the place where God will place his name. Even the verbs choose not an action like a command, but an invitation. Come to me. Jerusalem will be the place where God dwells, and they're invited, and so even in their worship, In one sense, it's to be tremendously exclusive, not to follow in the paths of the Canaanites or even the desires of their own hearts. And in the other sense, it's tremendously inclusive, to bring, to invite, to call all to come. And so, uh, verse 13, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. However, 
You may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. This is part of the adaptation or what's new in Israel's transition. Leviticus requires all meat to be sacrificed under the eye of the Levitical priesthood in the presence of the tabernacle. Now, Notice the difference between these two things. All of your offerings for God need to come all the way to Jerusalem. All of your meat for meals, you can do that where you are. Okay, that's the distinction here. Notice also that here he cannot help but mention meat without recognizing that it's directly tied to God's grace. And so it says uh, that you can eat as much as you desire according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given, to, given you. Underlying anything that Israel would have to offer God or eat for themselves is the provision of God. And even here that's recognized. He continues here and he points out that they can eat not only the, um, sorry, that not only the clean can eat of it, but also the unclean. Notice he says that the unclean and the clean may eat of it as of the gazelle and as of the deer, okay? So they can slaughter a calf or a lamb and they don't have to be ritually clean to eat it because it's not a sacrifice, okay? Verse 16, only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water, okay? And so we'll add another restriction to this in a second, which is that the meat that they eat needs to be clean animals and not unclean animals. They don't need to do it at the temple or at the tabernacle or in Jerusalem. They can do it in their own city gates, um, but they always have to pour out the blood. The emphasis here with the blood has to do probably with two ideas, okay? One is this constant correlation between life and blood, okay? When they're told not to drink the blood or to eat the blood in their animals but pour it out, the reason that's given in Leviticus is for the life is in the blood. Okay. And so one of the things this recognizes here is that even though this is not a religious sacrifice, it is the death of one thing for the life of another. Okay. Every time Israel takes an animal, they're to be fully aware of the fact that that animal has given its life so that they can be nourished. Okay. If anything, Deuteronomy, as well as the rest of the Pentateuch, maintains a high view of animals. Clearly here, it in, in, envisions meat-eating. But that doesn't make animals unvaluable. Okay, we'll see this come up a few more times throughout the book, but I just wanted to reference it there. The second idea of them not eating the blood here has to do uh, with the Canaanites themselves. A good deal of Canaanite fertility worship involved recognizing blood as life and then utilizing it for its magical or its religious effects. Verse 17, you may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or your wine or your oil or the firstborn of your herd or your flock or any vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present. Those can all go to Jerusalem or have to, but verse 18, you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. 
The second thing we learn about worship here is not only is it to be exclusive, not only is it to be as God has designed it, but it's also supposed to be joyful. Twice now he's told us that the primary definition of what this worship will look like in Jerusalem when they go on pilgrimage, when they offer their tithes and sacrificing, will be rejoicing. It's to be a celebration. It's to be joyful, no somber affair. So, verse 19, take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. Verse 20, when the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat. You may eat meat whenever you desire. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock which the Lord has given you. As I have commanded you, you may eat it within your towns whenever you desire. Just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. Now, notice here, everything we just read is repetition. It's stuff that we just went through. It's worth remembering that Deuteronomy is a written record of an audible sermon. And one great tool of the trade for the preacher is repetition. As we're reading the book, you don't really need repetition in the same way because you can just go back and read it again. But for your first audience, for a live audience, when you speak, you often want to repeat what you said because there's no rewind, right? There's no going back. And so he reiterates this all again, and then he finishes here in verse 24, you shall not eat it, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it eat of it that all may go well with you and with your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. And so once again, it's framed in this idea of the choice to obey or to disobey, to follow God or to rebel. Verse 26, but the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings you shall take, you shall go to the place that the Lord shall choose and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you, with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. And so what we have here in chapter 12 so far is both a negative, don't worship like the Canaanites, and then a positive, instead worship in the way that you were instructed. Okay? Where he goes next is to talk about the threats to orthodoxy, the threats to that right and proper worship. And so notice what he says here in verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you not be ensnared to follow them. Now practically, he's already addressed one dangerous way they could be ensnared, but he's going to address a different way that they can be ensnared. And so there's this warning given. He continues, After they've been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their God, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I also might do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. 
And so he says, don't follow in their footsteps because all of their worship is an abomination to God. It's terrible. And then it just chooses one example. That example is uh, labeled here that they burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Now, we don't know much about this practice except what the Bible tells us. And so we know that it involves specifically the God known as Molech, and it's effectively child sacrifice. And the emphasis here is, of all the things they do, the highlight of the list, just to make the point here, of things that God hates, is child sacrifice. And so he's emphasizing here the wrong road of Canaanite worship. Now, I want you to notice what it says in verse 32. Everything that I can't command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Now, that phrase, you should not add to it or take from it, is repeated a couple of times in the book of Deuteronomy. But I want you to notice its purpose here. In chapter 13, he's going to talk about three potential pitfalls of idolatry. Three possible ways it should go that they should be aware of. Three traps or snares to be aware of. The first one that involves is a prophet who tries to lead the people away from God. Now, with that idea that he's about to represent somebody who says, I am from God, and then demonstrates it with some sort of signs or miracles, and then says, and God would really like it if you also worship these other gods. This is what we're about to read in chapter 13. With that in mind, read again the words of 32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Okay. Here's the emphasis that I want you to understand. Moses here, in the book of Deuteronomy as a whole, maintains that the writings of Moses are to be a guide on further revelation. Okay. In other words, the prophets are to be tested by the revelation that's already given. God has already said very clearly in the Ten Commandments, do not worship any other gods. And so as we'll see, it doesn't matter if the prophet does signs and wonders. If he denies that, then he doesn't speak for God. The reason why I'm hammering this so heavily is because we see here uh, the priority of Scripture. At this point, as Israel enters the land, Moses, as we'll see, is going to hand them a book of the things that he's written that is the authority in their lives. That is what anything else that comes after, any prophet who says he speaks from God, is tested against. It's becoming common in our days to feel like we can somehow follow God or be Christians and downgrade our understanding of the scriptures from being the words of God to merely the words of men. Men rightly and properly trying to describe what God actually did, but doing it from their own flawed and limited perspective. The problem is that goes against the logic of the Bible itself that sees the scripture as being the litmus test for all that God has said or spoken. And that's not something that begins in the New Testament with the words of people like Paul and Peter. It begins here in Deuteronomy. Every prophet that follows the first prophet, Moses, has to stand against the words of Moses, the revelation of God. Remember what it's like for these people who actually saw the mountain and the smoke and the fire, who actually experienced the exodus out of Israel. Okay. 
It doesn't matter what somebody comes and says. It goes against who God has revealed himself to be. And it's recorded here who God has revealed himself to be for all those who will follow after. Okay, it's written in a book. And so, don't add or take from what was said, chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. Now, later in chapter 18, he's going to come at this a different way, and he's going to say if a prophet comes and says that he speaks for God, and the say, things he says don't come to pass, don't fear him because he doesn't speak for God. But here it's a little bit different. He says, even if the prophet or the interpreter of dreams comes and does miracles before you, and then his primary exhortation is worship other gods, reject him. Despite the signs, despite the miracles, reject him. One of the things that we need to realize is that the Bible maintains that God is fully capable of doing miracles. That those miracles can be evidence uh, of the authority uh, of whoever is doing the miracles. Just look at the signs of the apostles across the New Testament. But it does not deny the possibility of false signs and false miracles. The miraculous is not evidence enough of being a representative of God. And so instead they're given a different test. Does this prophet comply with what you already know to be true because of the words of Moses? Does what they say align with the scriptures themselves? And then notice what he says here because this is really interesting. Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's kind of a surprising thing to say, isn't it? Here's this false prophet trying to lead them away, and in a sense, Moses says, God is actually in this. He's actually using this. It's nothing more than a temptation that God is allowing to see what's really going on in your heart. You see, the Bible maintains that much of our sinfulness is not exposed or drawn out to its full consequence due to lack of opportunity. Okay? That's why Jesus emphasizes so much that we don't understand the law rightly unless we push it into our own hearts, unless we look at what our desires are, whether those desires are fulfilled or unfulfilled. We look at it and we say, do not commit adultery. Jesus looks at it and he says, but even if you lust after another person in your heart, you've already committed adultery. The sin is already lodged in seed form, whether it comes to full fruition or not. I think the greatest illustration of what is being talked about here, we find in the book of Revelation. Revelation portrays this picture of Jesus coming and setting up his throne on earth and ruling righteously in perfect justice for a thousand years. And then oddly, if you're reading the book, it says at the end of the thousand years, the devil, this enemy of God, who's been in chains for that entire duration, incapable of acting on the human plane, is set free. He's released back into the world, and then the next thing we find is a rebellion. And you look at that and you go, what? Why? You see, if we learn anything from this millennial reign picture, it's that outward conformity is not the same thing as righteousness. 
Effectively, by God releasing the devil, he gives all those who have lived in a perfect environment the opportunity. Choose if you will worship Jesus or not. Because just like in the garden, now there's an option. Who will you listen to? The God who created you or the snake? It's similar here. These prophets don't sneak in without God noticing. He knows what's going on, but what it will do is display what's really going on in Israel. When I was in school in Bible college, I was there with 599 some odd other students. And I discovered that certain aspects of Christian culture became really easy because everyone around me were participating in that. My devotional life improved. Um, praying with other people was a natural thing. Going, you know, and reading the Bible, all of these things were just part and parcel of the culture. But I found that lots of people after they left that uh, found themselves never having developed their own personal muscles of these things and all those things fell away. And so he warns him here that if you see this happening, it's an opportunity to show, do you really love the Lord your God, or are you just looking for an opportunity to go, oh, that's great, because there's some sex worship over there that I've really been wanting to try, and here's the permission, right? We don't always like to think of our behavior like that, but very often our doctrine is driven by our decisions. Very often uh, we no longer believe in these things because we're now living in those ways. And so that's built in here. And so he says here, continuing on, verse 4, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. In contrast to following some false prophet another way, they're to walk after, to follow, to fear, to obey. Interestingly enough, here is the actual Hebrew grammar of this sentence. Him you will follow, him you will obey, him you will walk after. The noun here for God is put in the front of every one of these phrases, emphasizing Moses' emphasis of God and not some other God. And then we see severe consequences for the false prophet, verse 5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. We live in a day that is uh, religiously pluralistic. And it's worth mentioning right now that God's laws for Israel are not the same thing as some legislation that the church should drive for today. We're in a different thing, okay? Israel was not to wipe out all of the religions of the earth. They just weren't to allow those religions to exist in the nation. There's a big difference between the fact that Israel was to, called to be a boat in the ocean and when the ocean gets into the boat, Right? And so now we are not a nation, but the church that has been sent out into every nation. Uh, and so the idea here is not an idea of jihad. That's not what's going on here. It's an idea of them forsaking their worship. But it may still bother you. It seems like a pretty high-stake consequence. I mean, we're talking about capital punishment uh, for this false prophet. But what we have to keep in mind uh, is the consequences that will come upon Israel. Or, in our day, the consequences of false doctrine. 
If the Bible is really true and this God is the one and only God, then leading another astray is serious business. Jesus puts it this way. He said, to lead a child astray, it would be better for a millstone, these giant stones that were used for grinding wheat, you know, um, a ton, maybe two tons worth of weight, to be thrown around his neck and for him to be cast into the sea. He takes these things serious because their consequences are serious. If you ever have the chance uh, to read it, G.K. Chesterton wrote a book. Let's see if I can recall the name of it. He wrote a novel called The Ball and the Cross. And The Ball and the Cross uh, begins when a Scottish Catholic is visiting London and finds this little paper written by an atheist that basically spends all its time trying to disprove the Bible. And so he's reading this article, not really noticing what he's reading, uh, on the window of the newest edition of this newspaper, explaining that the God of the Old Testament was really just a Canaanite God in new garb. And he shatters the window and walks through and challenges the editor to a duel to the death. Okay. And so this fight breaks out, and the cops break it up, and what happens in the story is these two become partners on the run, trying to have their duel to the death when the entire world is trying to stop them. And Chesterton's point is that only this atheist and this Catholic care about these things enough to say that they're worth dying for. This modern idea that basically says all religions are equal is also saying all religions are equally, equally false. So what's the difference? Chesterton was sensing that even a hundred years ago in his age, and he said, but what if it really is real? What if it really is worth dying for? What if the consequences are that dire? And so we see those consequences here. Now, we could easily say, yeah, but that's Israel, and we should watch out for that type of severity. And didn't Jesus say, you know, there's, there's the wheat and the tares, and let them grow up together? And absolutely he did. But it is interesting that Paul in the book of Galatians clearly has Deuteronomy 13 in mind when he says this. Listen, this is in Galatians chapter 1. Tell me if this sounds familiar. He says this. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Three things there. One, that word for accursed is the word from Deuteronomy 13, the one that we just read here. Okay. Second, if we were to translate it in English, because accursed is not really something we say, damned to hell is a pretty good translation. He speaks very strongly of this. Third, I want you to notice that here it's not if any miracle worker, but if any angel, and then he adds, or even me myself preached to you any other gospel, let him be accursed. Paul speaks very strongly here. That's why he says in, uh, in Galatians chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's angry, he's upset, he's concerned about the fate of the Galatians. He basically says, I'm afraid that you're going to be ripped off with eternal consequence. And so he takes these things seriously. It's the same sentiment, it's the same mentality, it's the same idea that we find back here in Deuteronomy. And so the first trap, the first ensnarement that Moses warns about is the false prophet. The second one 
is the family member or the close friend. Verse 6, if your brother, the son of your mother, or the son of your daughter, or the wife of you you embrace, or your friend who is your own soul, as your own soul, your bosom buddy, if you will, entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the people who are around you, whether near or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him or literally protect him. Now, once again, that sounds really extreme, and all the more so because we're talking here about family members. We're talking about close friends. The idea here is that they quietly come and say, hey, I just found out about this great opportunity, this place you should check out. I don't know if you know, but right outside the city, there's this place where people gather every night after dark to worship Baal, right? This is the idea. It's a whispered conversation. It's an invitation. And we read that severity, and it says, don't pity him. It says, don't spare him. And then it says, don't protect him. Don't give him sanctuary. Don't conceal him. And we read that, and we go, how callous. But you need to recognize the reason it's saying, don't pity him, is because that's the natural and appropriate response to your family members. Right? It's, it's not saying here uh, anything more than recognizing the risk that comes with close relationships which is that risk of influence, that risk of care. Okay? When it says, neither shall you conceal him, the idea here is that you won't cover up the danger that's going on. In fact, he continues, and he says, uh, verse 9, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. Let me explain what that means there. Okay? It's envisioning stoning to death, which is already what's been given for capital punishment to Israel. But it says here that your hand effectively will throw the first stone and then the community will follow. So two things this doesn't mean, okay? One, it doesn't mean that you're supposed to take action privately and as an individual against this person. This is a community action. But two, this is not something where you can hand off the sentence to others and not participate yourself, right? That's significant. One of the things we're most concerned of when we read about uh, legislation like this in the Old Testament uh, is like the Salem witch trials, right? When people were under the veil of religious reasons taken advantage of, okay? But we'll see, and especially in the next section, but even here, there's things to protect from that, okay? The taking up the stone yourself is proclamation of the fact that you are an eyewitness. It's taking ownership for your role in the trial. Okay? We are so capable as human beings to be involved in somebody's demise. Let's not even talk about death. Let's just talk about general court cases uh, and excuse ourselves because we're not the executioner. Remove ourselves from the system. Just think of how the justice system would be different if it was involved in this way where you had to take the responsibility, where it's literally your blood or their blood on your hands, right? And so there's this emphasis, and it really is a protection, recognizing the fact that this stuff can be used as a cover. Um, But nonetheless, it's to be taken seriously, and let me just remind you that Jesus maintains a similar sentiment. He says, if anyone seeks to follow me and does not hate his mother, his father, his brother, his sister, his wife, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
the emphasis between hatred and love there is one of choice. That if it's an ultimatum, if you have to choose between following your wife or following Jesus, Jesus says, the only way to follow me at all is to follow me alone. The emphasis is the same here. Jesus said, don't think that I've come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. And because of me, many families will be divided. Husband against wife, brother against sister, uncle against nephew. Right? The recognition here, as we've seen in chapter 12, again in chapter 13, is one of total allegiance. One that takes these things very seriously. Verse 10, you shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness among you. Notice that there's an incentive in this punishment for the community. That it's supposed to make them afraid of the consequences. Not just because if I get caught worshiping this other God, I could die. But because that worship of another God leads to death. It makes tangible what is spiritually true. Church discipline is different than this, right? It's not common that we stone someone within the church, and rightly so. When Paul talks about what we do with sin in the church, the death penalty isn't on the table. We are not Israel. But the emphasis, the principle here, of making the spiritual reality tangible is exactly the emphasis the New Testament puts on discipline. That's why he says, surrender this man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Surrender this man over to Satan so that even if his body is lost, his soul is saved. Let him be exposed to the full consequences of his sin so he might realize and escape from the final consequences of his sin. That's the idea there. But it's one of making the spiritual reality tangible. Once again, search your own heart. How often has it appears that I'm getting away with it eased your conscience, continued your behavior? I can't be the only one who's ever had a conversation with another person and they said, well, obviously God doesn't seem to care. Look how great my life is. That's the deceitfulness of sin. That's the deception. And one of the things that this would do in Israel is be an eye-opener, a reminder of what's really at stake in these things. So we've seen a false prophet. Now we see a secretive family member. And then finally, verse 12, if you hear that one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. Okay, and so here the premise is, you hear of a city somewhere else in Israel that wholly and completely, under the leadership of somebody, has abandoned God and is worshiping someone else. Now, once again, notice that they don't just take this on hearsay. Verse 14, then you shall inquire and make a search and ask diligently. Okay, there's to be an investigation. They're not just to, to uh, you know, shoot first and ask questions later. There needs to be an investigation. They have to find out what's really going on. But if this happens, behold, if it's true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction. Now that's the phrase that has been used consistently for the Canaanites and their religion. In other words, if they're going to 
wrongly and do the wickedness, wrongly worship and do the wickedness of the Canaanites, they're going to experience the same fate as the Canaanites, okay? God's justice is equal here. Um, But notice that in doing so, devoting to destruction, notice what it says, all who are in it, it's cattle with the edge of the sword. You should gather all its spoil in the midst of the open square and burn the city and all of the spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. Two things I want you to notice there that are implied in here, two protections that are given, okay? One, there's no financial gain out of this scenario, right? All of their goods are to be burned in the city square along with the city. One of the reasons why the Salem witch trials and other things like this, uh, the, um, the Inquisition and these things that we're so concerned about, one of the things that made them so horrible is became, it became a cover for greed and a way for people to take and to, to steal. That wasn't possible in this. In fact, not even the city itself. Maybe it was just that they had a better view of the lake They had better property. No, that city will never be rebuilt, okay? This is about serious things, but only about serious things. There needs to be an investigation. The possibility of financial uh, or gain through real estate is removed. Verse 17, none of the devoted things shall stick to your hand that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you. Here's another thing that I think is worth emphasizing. One of the reasons we aren't bothered by the reality of a false prophet or a tempting family member or even a city gone the other way is because we view things in such a modern, autonomistic fashion. We see ourselves as individuals, so other people's sin is their business. Not so in Israel. Israel sees and recognizes the communal consequences of individual decisions. And so notice what it says here, so that, uh, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you, plural, mercy, and have compassion on you, plural, and multiply you, okay? One city has gone apostate, but that city is a part of Israel. It's not an outward threat, it's an internal threat. The danger is there, okay? Um, and they recognize the communal consequence of these things, Verse 18, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I'm commanding you today and doing what's right in the sight of the Lord your God. Okay, and so he'll continue to have mercy and compassion and multiply you if instead of this, you obey. Now let's move on to chapter 14. 14 turns again to food, but once again, the emphasis has to do with worship. It has to do with exclusivity. It begins in chapter 14, verse 1. You are the sons of of the Lord your God, okay? So notice the piece of revelation that's given there. What he's about to say about um, not cutting yourself or your beard in mourning about uh, the kosher laws is rooted in this fact of sonship. That's important, okay? The distinction that's made here is that God has adopted them and made them his children, that he's a, they're now a part of his family, okay? We'll come back to that in a second, but notice what he says. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your forehead for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So what does he say here? He says, don't do these things because you are God's children. Don't do these things because you are holy 
to the Lord. Don't do these things because he chose you. Don't do these things because you are his treasured people out of all of the nations. Do you see how every one of those emphasizes distinction? Effectively, this says, God has made you different, so be different. Okay, that's important. And so the first thing that's said here is that they're not to cut themselves or make any baldness on their forehead for the dead. Now with that second one, baldness on the forehead, we don't actually know what haircut that's talking about. Okay? The, the word there, we know it has something to do with shaving, um, but we don't know exactly what it is. It's that phrase, for the dead, that's important. Okay? We know that much of the Canaanites' religion involved the practice of self-laceration, Um, and uh, certain forms of mourning that were not merely just great grief, okay, but actually religious, actually ways of trying to manipulate the gods and, and seek about fertility. And so the distinction is made there. They're not to do those things. For the most part, the rest of the chapter focuses on food, but it's also on this difference. It's on this distinction. So it says in verse 3, you shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals that you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cut among the animals you may eat. Okay, so first we're given examples of what they can eat, and then we're given the logic behind the examples. And the logic is basically all of those both have split hooves and chew the cut. Okay? Now, all of us look at that and go, well, that's not really logic. That's true, but it doesn't help us understand what's going on here. Hold on to that for just a second. Verse 7, yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these. So these are ones that do chew the cud but have a single hoof. Uh, the camel, the hare, the rock badger, which I know doesn't sound like a thing, but I've seen one. It really is a thing. Uh, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. The flesh you shall not eat, their carcasses you shall not touch. And so he basically says, here are the animals you can eat. Here are the ones you can't eat. All of these do two things. They have a split hoof and they chew the cud. All of these do zero or one, but not both of these things, and so you're not allowed to eat them. Now, we'll see similar contrasts with the other animals. He's going to talk about animals in the sea. He's going to talk about animals that fly and insects. Each one of them will have these categorical, logical distinctions that don't make sense to us. The most important point we need to get, whatever the reasoning is, is simply this. It's one of difference. Okay? Every time they ate, every time they interacted with another nation and saw how they ate, it was a reminder of the fact that Israel was distinct from the nations. Okay? That's why we no longer have to experience the kosher laws, because the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been brought down in what Jesus did. And so Mark chapter 7 tells us that uh, Jesus declares all things clean. Uh, Peter in Acts chapter 10 has this vision of a sheet descending, and he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, those are all unclean animals. And he says, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. And then what happens next? A centurion's representative shows up at the door, and Peter discovers that God is also for the Gentiles, and that salvation is available to them apart from Judaism, right? That distinction is broken down. It was temporary. It was to serve a particular purpose, and that purpose was to be a constant daily, even three times a day, if they're healthy eaters, reminder 
of the fact that they are different, that they are separate. Okay. Now, is there logic beyond that? There is one suggestion that I find at least interesting. Some have gone, well, maybe it's more hygienic. After all, we know that pork that's not cooked well enough uh, you know, uh, it can be dangerous for you. Um, the toxicity level in all of the listed unclean animals, according to some studies, is higher. Uh, but he doesn't give hygienic reasons. Some say, well, maybe these are the animals that other people worshipped, but they also worshipped the cow, and the cow is a clean animal. But Mary Douglas, who was a sociologist and a Christian, in that order, she wasn't a Christian sociologist, she was just doing sociology, and then happened to be reading the Bible and had some insight, um, studying tribes in our day, far, far away from the United States, noticed that clean and unclean is a pretty common category for lots and lots of people groups. And what she noticed in the particular tribe she was studying, what she suggested here, is the difference has to do with what is usual to that group of animals. And so generally, land animals have cloven hoofs and chew the, cubs, uh, chew the cud. The others are outliers. They're oddities. One place to illustrate this is actually with the fish. So notice what it says in verse 9. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. Whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It's unclean for you. In other words, all the fish, which is most of what's in the ocean, you can eat all of that. But an eel has no scales, so you can't eat that. And a lobster has no fins, so you can't eat that, right? There's the usual thing, the fish, and then there's the outliers. There's the oddities, okay? The reason why I'm drawn to Mary Douglas's interpretation is because it fits that idea of difference. That it's not necessarily, in fact... Um, clean and unclean only has to do with eating. This isn't good and bad animals. Okay? It just has to do with eating. But there's this normal and abnormal emphasis. Right and wrong is not necessarily on the table as much as uh, in and out. In fact, notice verse 11. You may eat all the clean birds, but these are the ones you shall not eat. Okay, now, many, many of these words here, we're doing the best we can to find modern equivalent. But the Bible doesn't talk a lot about birds except the ones we're not supposed to eat. So we don't know which ones are actually vultures or what types of birds they are. But we do know that almost everyone on this list is a carrion bird. Okay? They're a scavenger. They eat meat and usually dead meat. Okay? Which seems significant when you look at the rest of the law of Israel. So we have the eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl and the barn owl and the tawny, tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hopo and the bat. Okay, And then it goes on and it does one last category, the creeping things. And all the winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. Okay? And so we find out in a different place uh, there is a distinction uh, in insects. Uh, but here it's just reminded that there's a difference between clean and unclean. Okay? But once again, what I want you to recognize here is that in God's making commands of what happens at their kitchen table... He brings the distinctiveness of Israel into the very heart of their lives, okay, in their daily lives. Not just what happens when they sacrifice in Jerusalem, but what happens when they carve up a turkey in their kitchen. And effectively, what it seems to be is a constant reminder 
of their uniqueness, of the fact that they are sons, a treasured possession, chosen wholly to the Lord your God, as we saw in the first few verses. Verse 21, you shall not eat anything that is dyed naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. Why? For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And then we have one of the ones that's the most cryptic. It just says, to close out the chapter here, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This is actually the third time that this is recorded in the Old Testament law. The other two are in the book of Exodus. When we read it, once again, we have to go, why? And why this specific example? It is worth mentioning that later in Deuteronomy in chapter 22, it's also going to say if you come across a nest and you see in it eggs and the mother bird, let the mother bird go, but you can have the eggs. Do you see the similarity there? This relationship between two generations? So maybe it just has to do with being overly cruel, okay? Which I think we would all recognize. It's not just weird to boil a goat in its mother's milk. It seems somewhat inappropriate. But another suggestion uh, is that you're taking something, milk, which is nourishing, and using it as a means of death. And so that may be the inappropriateness of it that's implied. Many people believe most likely that this is actually pointing to another Canaanite practice that we do not know. And there's a good reason to do so because the other two times this is mentioned, it's mentioned specifically after bringing in your first fruit offerings. So it says, bring all of your offerings in for worship, your first fruits, and then it says, oh, and don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. So most likely, this was actually a fertility practice of the Canaanites that going through this was a way to try and manipulate the gods of harvest for a good harvest. And so it's another Canaanite practice that's being denied. Now the rest of the chapter, where we'll finish tonight, has to do with tithes. Now in modern parlance as Christians, when we talk about tithes, we're generally talking about the fact that we give 10% of our income, that's what tithe means, a tenth, 10% of our income to our local church. I want you to notice how different the tithe is here in Deuteronomy. Verse 22, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Okay, so far, same thing, 10% of everything you make. But notice verse 23, before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, your wine, and your oil, your firstborn of your herd and your flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And so what do they do with the tithe? They save up 10% of it all year long and then they bring it to Jerusalem and they feast it before the Lord in the temple. It becomes a, a fellowship offering, a celebration, a feast where God is the host and they eat in his house, the temple, right? Do you see that? Okay. So notice verse 24, if the way is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe. Okay, so imagine you have a lot of animals and a lot of grain and you live as far from Jerusalem as you can get without leaving the land of Israel. Are you really supposed to carry all that stuff all the way to Jerusalem? Do you have to you know, uh, load up 27 donkeys once a year to do this? No, instead, 
it says here, if the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses, says, name there, verse 25, you shall turn it into money, bind up the money in your hand, and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses, and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and rejoice, you and your household, and you shall not neglect the Levite who's within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. So we do see here... Uh, two things about the tithe. One, that it was to be a celebratory version of worship. Okay? Effectively, a recognition that the other 90% as well is God's gift, and so a celebration of his goodness. Right? But it does include here also participating in that fe- feast is the Levites. Okay? So when we recognize today that our tithes and offerings appropriately support those who do the work of ministry, like Jesus said, a laborer is worthy of his wages. Like Paul says, those who minister the gospel should earn a living by the gospel. We have a correlation between these two things. But the primary thing I want you to notice is that it's not good to think of your tithe or your offerings as something you give to the church. It's something the church pools together. That distinction, I think, is an important one. They benefit here from the tithe. They utilize it in their celebration. And so when we take offerings as a church, it's not you supporting someone else's ministry. It's us doing the ministry together, okay? Affording a place where we can gather for worship. Supplying those uh, the opportunity to teach full-time so that they can devote themselves to leading and pastoring the church. Um, At our church, we use 10% of all of the income that we give as a church to give to our deacons to take care of needs within the church. And we'll see where that comes from in just a second. But this is the original tithe, okay? And so it's corporate. It involves the fear of God, the worship of God, the celebration of God. It involves supporting the ministers here, the Levites. And then notice verse 28. At the end of every three years, you should bring out all the tithe of your produce that same year and lay it up within your towns. Okay? So... We're probably talking about the seven-year cycle that Israel was to run on. Remember how every seventh year was a Sabbath year? So four of those years, years one, two, four, and five, they would bring that tenth to Jerusalem and celebrate. On years three and six, they would gather it up in their town, and it would be used in a different way. Specifically, verse 29 the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are with you in your town shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work that your hands may do. And so this every third year, the third and the sixth year, would be stored together as a way of taking care of the poor and the foreigner as well as the Levite, Okay. And so when we talk about a tithe as just being a tenth of your income that you give to the local church, we're really modifying what this is here. What we do see is that it has a corporate, that it has a worship of God, that involves the support of ministries, but it also needs to be taking care of the needy within the church. And this is something we see the early church doing in the book of Acts. And so one of the things the church in Acts does is they have a roster of widows that they take care of their daily needs. Where does that money come from? Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 5, if they have children who are healthy with jobs, then they should take care of their parents. But if not, then the whole church should support them. 
okay? It's a way of taking care of the poor within Israel or in our day taking care of the poor within the church. And then notice how it finishes here. They're to come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of, the hand, of your hands that you do. There's a cycle here. Do you see that? And so the idea here is that you bring your tenth and God blesses you with more and so you bring a bigger 10% and there's, there's an idea here of a relationship in these things. Um, but it is more than we often think about. Now it's worth pointing out and we'll close here that the New Testament doesn't actually call us to pay a tithe. The only time the tithe is mentioned in the New Testament that I can remember right now off the top of my head dealing with daylight savings is when Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees and he says, you tithe your, your rue and your cumin, uh, you know, you tithe these different spices, but you neglect the greater things of mercy and justice. Now notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't go, you tithe like a righteous idiot. He has no problem with them tithing. Even tithing in their smallest little crop, the one that's growing in you know, their little kitchen garden. He says, but there are more important things. In the New Testament, though, when we look in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, as we're doing on Sunday mornings, or in uh, Philippians chapter 4, or in the other places that talk about generosity, it doesn't use the terms tithe. Okay? In fact, if anything, the New Testament's emphasis on uh, on giving does involve the idea of the Old Testament. So, for example, we learned last week that any giving we do should be proportionate, okay? that there should be relationship between what we have and what we give. And so it's not an equalized entry fee where the poor give $100 and the, right, uh, you know, the rich give $100. Paul says it should be proportionate. It should be comparative. Jesus looks at a woman who gives two mites in the temple and he says she's given more than anyone because she gave all that she had. Okay? He values it proportionately. But there's no cap put on generosity in the New Testament. There's no limitation. Instead, we're just given an example that Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we might become rich. And it's worth pointing out that he didn't give a tenth of his blood. He didn't just give a part or a portion of all of his riches. He gave himself. He gave all he had. And so, New Testament Christians aren't required to tithe. But they shouldn't be limited by the tithe either. If anything, we've had a greater understanding of God's goodness and gift in Jesus Christ. And so we should be more generous with what we have. Let's pray. God, it's so mind-bending to me, this exclusive, inclusive reality, Lord, that you call yourself the only God that is and then the Father of the fatherless. That you say that we can only worship in the way that you devise and then we say not to turn anyone away from that worship. That we should make a way that even the poor and the foreigner can come and participate and enjoy the goodness of what God has given us. I pray, Lord, that you would just develop that same heart in us. We cannot read the prophets of the Old Testament and their condemnation of Israel's forsaking the God of the Bible and not come away understanding that God cares for the poor and calls for us to, uh, to be just in taking care of them. As Paul puts it in the New Testament, do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. And so I pray, Lord, that you would make us a sharing people. And what we would share, God, would be in celebration of the one 
true God, the one true God who is the giving God, the generous God, the God of grace. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.